You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I, just, I, th- I think this is a good part of content. So let's let's talk about these. Uh, my accent, which I, I will tell you now, um, changes when I'm recording. I've got a podcast voice because uh, I've been podcasting since I was 16 years old, okay. which puts me at over a decade, actually an unlucky number of years podcasting. So um, I'm quite used to being in front of the mic okay. here. So, wh- wh- yeah. what do you think? Where do you think my accent comes from? So, there's a bit of. I mean, there is obviously a touch of uh, Northern Irish, I would say. Ah, oh, okay, you got it. Well done. That's okay. Um, have you spent yeah. some time in the states, or is that just a sort of? Is that your podcast voice? I think that's my podcast voice. I think it's because I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I I did have an American pen pal when I was younger as well, who, well, I mean, phone pal, but you don't really say phone pal, do you? Like I would, (laughs) I would sit and speak to her on the phone for an hour every week. Yeah. Uh, Okay. It it wrapped up. And so it's a Belfast accent, but you've been, uh, what, up north in the UK or where? Actually, there's, there's a funny bit about this, um, which is actually how I wanted to introduce this. Yeah. So uh, if you if you allow me. Um, so hello, everybody. Welcome to Modern Myth. Uh, the man I am speaking to is the wonderful Professor Dan Hicks, who's the Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at the University of Oxford, as well as the curator of the Pitt Rivers Museum. Also, auf diesem Podcast fangen wir an im Jahr 2020. Leider, unter Museums sind leider in die Achsenjahrhundert. Wie, wie schaffen wir eine bessere Auskunft für diese Objekte in Museums? Und danach habe ich eine Frage über Ihren neuen Buch. Okay, okay, go ahead. I mean, I don't know, the 18th century or maybe the, you know, the 17th century. But yeah, okay, go for it. No, no, I, I was just trying to, I was going to use that to kind of scare you a little bit, like kind of. You can um, ask all the questions in German if you want. I mean, this is, you know, when we have our meetings at uh, TU, everyone speaks their own language, you know, French, German, English, and we all mm-hmm. get along with it. So that's, yeah. that's really interesting. <laughs> so um, the reason I did that is because actually one of the really funny things that I, one of the things I saw you tweeting recently was in German. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, about why, why were you tweeting in German? Um, so I was uh, giving a lecture in uh, Berlin, obviously in these weird, you know, lockdown times. That meant I was sat exactly where I'm sat now in my office in Oxford. But I gave a named lecture, uh, the the uh, the Schöner lecture uh, at the Technische University Berlin. Um, when was it? Actually, yesterday. Yeah, it's it's odd. These these you know. <laughs> Yeah, time is operating in interesting ways under lockdown. Um, Completely. But yeah, so so it was a it was a translation of the the outline which mm-hmm. uh, uh, TU had done. And I mean, mm-hmm. one thing we're learning, interestingly, I think, out of out of lockdown is that the audiences and the conversations you have, even though it's all on the internet, is always actually you know nuanced according to who's hosting you so again i mean absolutely wonderful to be hosted by you today i'm not quite sure where you are though i mean where are you physically now so i should have googled this before but yeah well i'm i'm based i'm based in scotland um because i i i studied uh i studied i started out as a chemist um uh, at the university of aberdeen and Mm. um in first year of my university i Basically, um, I had to take an elective class, and uh, archaeology is an A in the catalogue. Um, so, so I did. Sure. I took that as an elective, <laughs> and um, as with any kind of voracious um, infectious disease, I was consumed. And uh, unfortunately, 
I made the decision with all this kind of archaeological, um, malignant archaeology on my brain, um, I actually changed degrees halfway through my third year. And okay. I became archaeology with chemistry. Uh, that okay. might I hadn't sound- realized. I hadn't appreciated yeah. it until I emerged, talking to a scientist. Right. That, that, well, that changes everything. <laughs> Well, here's a here's a bite to change again. The reason I got into archaeology was because of archaeological theory. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. That, that was that was great while it lasted, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that that's a that's a very interesting point because I think the discussions that we are now seeing off the back of what your new book is about seems to be the disconnect between the kind of discussions that are had in what I would call theory circles and yeah. what the general public thinks about history. And that actually, that, that, that divide, that separation between public and past is hmm. where I'm actually really, that's where my kind of, that's my, that's the zone where I inhabit and I enjoy. That's, that's why I call myself a digital public archaeologist because I feel that's the important role that archaeologists have um, as facilitators in um, managing and assisting uh, the Mm. public in getting in touch with the past. Uh, The the problem is that, uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, is that there's a kind of a way of doing archaeology, a way of doing history, and a way of doing museums that has been set as an archetype for so long mm. that it's it's really difficult to help people <laughs> almost unlearn it you know um yeah i mean you you kind of you, is the pit rivers museum the first museum that you've kind of like been a part of or was uh, did you work in other museums as well Sure. Okay. Well, that's a, you know, that's a really good question. Um, And yeah, I mean, I began, I spent the first 10 years of my working life as a a contract archaeologist, as a, as a field archaeologist, Mm -hmm. you know, the sort of, the seasonality that one has in what we used to, yeah, what we used to call commercial archaeology, but yeah, I mean, yeah, rescue archaeology. I mean, whatever you want to call it, yeah, that sort of seasonality where you moved in between outdoors and indoors. You know, you would have a period on a you know project. Obviously, you know, unfortunately, the outdoors bit uh, didn't always you know map onto the right season. Uh, so you could be doing a watching brief on a on a road scheme. You could be doing a, an evaluation on a. You know, on a housing estate, you could be undertaking an open, uh, open area excavation in the middle of winter, and then indoors, you know, doing what you know what you know, what was known as the postex, uh, you know, you know, in the summer. But certainly, you know, that was my background initially, and in that work, of course, I, you know, I also, you know, worked for for. You know, regional museums, yeah, local authority museums, um, who had an archaeological sort of wing. You know, who, who had, you know, a uh, you know a part of of them that was undertaking excavation. So yeah, I guess I mean I I sort of happened into museums, but uh, you know I'm sort of definitely not a museum person. I mean I still think mm-hmm. of a museum as a as an enormous archaeological assemblage, as a sort of archaeological site in its own right, and mm-hmm. I think that's the main career trajectory I've had has been the movement from from outdoors. And so, sort of, you know, learning my craft in terms of whether it's at a landscape scale, the archaeology of your buildings, you know, the archaeology of, you know, subsurface archaeology, where, of course, as a rescue archaeologist, one has to deal with everything from the, uh, the Neolithic into the modern. You know, I've actually brought that set of skills that, you know, you know, way of seeing. It is a worldview. You know, I really, really... Yeah, you know, brought that indoors, and so I'm a bit unlike a lot of people in the museum world in that I'm I'm an outdoor person who finds um, yeah, themselves indoors. Um, so yeah, I think if we think about a museum, so that means that I'm not the sort of curator 
who has, you know, one little box in the museum that has got all their you know, favourite objects in it, and then they ignore the other, you know, hundreds of thousands of things that are there. And that happens a lot in museums, it turns out. And in uh, 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 world culture museums, it, it, it actually happens even more than it does in, you know, other forms of, you know, if you like, more mm-hmm. focused museums. Um, so I'm a generalist, you know, and I can't help but be as interested in the formation of this assemblage over the, you know, you know here at, in the case of uh, the museum in which I work now, um, over the past 140 or so years, you know, actually, I mean, I find that even more interesting and maybe, you know, actually, I mean, the most important thing to understand, rather than only the original as it were, in inverted commas, the meaning of each of these objects, uh, you know, that we find ourselves. So, yeah, I find myself, you know, I also, at an early point, I mean, I actually began my first job as an archaeologist, uh, was a work experience, a job that then sort of turned into a, uh, you know, into a paid job and into the first thing I did for several years, which was uh, gardens archaeology. So I, you know, right from the outset, I was, you know, you know, looking at the post-medieval mm-hmm. and was being involved in, you know, heritage uh, sites, including the National Trust, but other gardens as well, you know, sort of undertaking archaeology in advance of uh, uh, garden restoration. Mm-hmm. So for 30 years now, even over 30 years, I have been uh, digging up you know, the modern world. Yep. Yeah. And I quite like this kind of excavating the excavators, um, watching the watchmen, as it were, uh, because I, I think that's one of the things that archaeologists really feel uncomfortable with is this idea of, you know, viewing their own work not as a an extension of, well, this is what we find. This is the information. It speaks for itself. But rather, it's a cultural process uh, of sorts, you know, in, in the economy, in the world that we live in the society we live in yeah. um archaeologists fill fulfill uh, a certain role and so do museums i mean the the thing about museums however is that they have and haven't really changed um i'll, I'll preface that a little bit i sure. believe that the fundamental structures of the museum and its place in society has not really deviated in the perspective of the public eye um, over the last hundred years. Uh, Even if within museums, things have changed. What would you say museum's role today is and maybe what should it be? Sure. Okay. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I find myself, of course, now you know, working at the Pitt Rivers at a university museum. And I, you know, I think that's an important, you know, point from which to, you know, to be aware that, you know, that is the angle on which I'm I'm approaching mm-hmm. museums. But yeah, yeah. also it sort of reminds us that museums always were about, you know, knowledge. So for me at the Pitt Rivers, and I think there's a different answer for different sorts of uh, museum. I, you know, I think it's actually quite, yeah, you know, hard to make a general statement about all museums. I mean, a lot of my personal favourite museums are, you know, local museums which are set up for completely different reasons, for reasons of community history, for communities sort of coming together. You know that that you know that's in that's obviously enormously different to you know, much, you know, to institutions that have existed over a longer period that have had different rationales. Yeah, Dan, I don't want, I don't want all this nuance in this conversation. That's terrible. I I am. (laughs) Yeah, so I work in it. Yeah, yeah. Let me answer according to where I work. So I work in a university museum. And for me, you know, at its best, what the Pitt Rivers should and could be, and indeed other anthropology museums, you know, like it around the world, because quite a lot of ethnological, you know, world archaeological, anthropological museums were set up in institutions in you know, universities 
in the later 19th century. I mean, we have these institutions in Ivy, Ivy League, you know, colleges in, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, you know, a range of different, you know, Manchester, Glasgow, you know. So even uh, UCL has some museums, right? So, so you know, from the university um, yeah, perspective, you know, at its best, what the Pitt Rivers should be is the public space for archaeology and anthropology. So in these days, it, you know, exactly as has been the case in the past, you know, these are disciplines that, you know, by, by their nature, exactly the same as the history of art, you know, they have spaces in which their subject matter can be engaged with. So, you know, let's think of them as public spaces. Let's think of them as, you know, the public spaces of the discipline. But then let's realise, which has, you know, something which has been the case certainly since, you know, the Second World War and arguably earlier than that, that these spaces have been out of step with actually where the discipline is. So they haven't kept, they've actually diverged, they've, or, or even you could say, yeah, never mind, they've diverged. Actually, you know, anthropology museums have, have ossified. They, they, they need to catch up with all of the changes we saw in anthropology in the civil rights um, movement, you know, in, in all the changes un- that, that anthropology is, under, is actually, you know, having happened to it at the moment. I mean, anthropology is at the at its worst. It's a tool of empire. It's a way in which empire persists in terms of knowledge systems. But you know, at its best, it's a way of you know looking at the world outside of a conventional you know, Eurocentric mindset. It's a way of you know, celebrating you know, people above objects. Uh, it's a way of understanding you know, different ways of being, of knowing, of, of of sort of living. So, you know, I love anthropology and archaeology as uh, disciplines, and I love how they continue to evolve. I want them to, I think they need to in this moment, in the ongoing uh, civil rights moment that we find ourselves in. But they're out of step. So, you know, that's the challenge for something like the Pitt Rivers, is to make it, you know, adequate for, for where anthropology and archaeology are going, even where they've got to, you know, in the 21st century, and to make these museums fit for the present moment. That's a very, very good kind of um, place to situate where the museum, like, kind of ought to be. And actually... Um, on this show, one of the previous episodes, I mm. spoke to uh, an archaeologist from Nigeria. And mm. obviously, it came to a discussion about museums in Africa and also um, the kind of the dialogue that exists between uh, museums and communities. And this mm. kind of ties quite, this comes in a, a, a lot to your work and to obviously your book, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. I want to understand sure. the relationship uh, between uh, communities in Africa and museums in the UK, um, maybe drawing upon examples of perhaps um, the work that you've been involved in uh, about bringing these kind of two, these two sta- sides, these two stakeholders together. Sure. So the relationship starts with the destruction of communities. So, you know, these objects from Africa find their way into museums through surprisingly chaotic routes. Uh, yeah, the 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 the, mm-hmm. uh, the book is about the Benin uh, bronzes, which is one you know iconic example among you know many other examples of you know you know looting for the private you know wealth for the for the personal gain of you know, soldiers administrators that were part of empire uh, journalists even who who were part of this attack but um you know there's also a a wider history of the taking of culture which was a device which was put to use you know to dismantle you know you know traditional systems of belief so confiscations by missionaries you know sovereignty so the taking away of your royal objects by 
we often by force. Um, you know the the way. So so I mean the, the 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 idea of the relationship in between a museum and an African community starts with loss, with violence, with you know dispossession. There's also that that word community is often also problematic. So mm-hmm. let's just be aware that a lot of the normal you know vocab that we use in the museum world. Um, you know, and the way in which we have in the past sort of framed your restitution, because, you know, returning things is, is actually business as usual in a whole set of different, you know, ways. For example, you know, ancestral ancestral uh, remains being, you know, returned to Maori or to, or to First Nations communities. You know, but sometimes when we say community, that stands in for the technical uh, museum idea of the source community. And that is an idea that comes very specifically out of the history of uh, settler colonialism. So the important work and the ongoing work, which is you know happening in uh, museums in North America and, and NAGPRA, uh, in the US, in Canada, under other systems, you know, from from you know, European museums, and the Pitt Rivers Museum has been at the at the forefront, really. I think in the UK, it's fair to say, over the past you know twenty five years or so of that sort of work with source communities. But you know, that language of indigeneity of source communities it maps really awkwardly onto so many of the histories of Africa which involved a different sort of empire. So this wasn't just settler colonialism. This was extractive colonialism. This Mm. was corporate militarist colonialism. And in those histories of empire, which were about, you know, the physical removal at first of your people, you know, the expropriation of 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 Africans, you know, objectified as part of the Atlantic trade, um, the ex, you know, the ex, the expropriation uh, as we're aware of of you know, land, but mm-hmm. then the taking of objects, it turns out in the nineteenth century and onwards, also turned out to be a for, a very important form of dispossession, uh, and so it's a dispossession that destroys. Uh, you know that destroys communities, and it's one, therefore, in which actually restitution and the dialogues around it have to start with all these senses of loss of dis of dispersal. In the case of the bronzes, you know the Benin attack of eighteen ninety seven. You know the book sort of talks about how that sheer violence, the, you know, the sheer uh, your moment of impact, you know, how much hardware, how many you know, bullets were, you know, were involved, how many, you know, rocket launchers and so forth, actually led to that, you know, the physical, you know, movement of, of these objects in more than 150 museums around the world. So that's the destruction of a culture. That's the destruction of, you, you know, over half a millennium of, you mm. know, of a royal line. So in the case of Benin, as with so many other examples of, across Africa, when we talk about working with communities, we're talking about fragmented communities. We're talking about a diasporic, a diasporic um, community, we're talking about nation states and their relationships with the federal agencies and with the royal court as it continues. So it, it's almost like the, the return of objects or the, and the conversations that lead sort of to that in an action-oriented way have, have an important role at the rebuilding of the communities that were under attack under, under mm-hmm. you know, European empire. We're going to take a quick break and afterwards we'll be talking about Dan Hicks's new book, The British Museums. And we're back. You're listening to Modern Myth. I'm speaking to Professor Dan Hicks about his new book, The British Museums. Um, So we were just talking about deconstructing and reimagining what even community means in respect to where 
these uh, calls for restitution um, are coming from and to whom do they return to? I'd like to kind of talk about maybe what was the kind of the impetus behind writing this book. And I've noticed there was a Twitter handle uh, that was been around for a wee bit beforehand. What came first, the idea for the book or the Twitter handle? So the idea for the book came first. Um, and, you know, this in many ways is a book I've been thinking about since I arrived at the Pitt Rivers Museum more than 13 years ago. Um, and it was a book that was, hard, you know, that was impossible to write at that time. Um, but especially with the changes that came with the Rosemus Four Oxford movement five years ago, you know, it felt like the time was right to try and write this book. And it has uh, become really, you know, because of the changing, you know, what, what I have learned from African-led, you know, campaigns over restitution, from, you know, listening you know, to the protests which we've seen at the Pitt Rivers, uh, and by, you know, understanding how the dialogue has, has uh, de uh, developed in different ways in, you know, different locations within uh, Europe. Um, you know, the book has really come out of... Yeah, you know, a, a, a bit like something we said earlier. You know how how yeah you know, how appropriate how how can we you know how can we address that the sort of mismatch in between what anthropology and archaeology claim to be in this sort of day and age with what the museum sort of physically is, and that required me actually to dig into the history of the museum, into that second layer of the meaning of these objects that we mentioned earlier, that, you know, the, the sort of, sort of you know, double historicity, as I call it in the book, which, I mean, to cut across the jargon is to say, you know, the history of these objects in the past sort of century or more, rather than their, their, only their original meanings, to see, you know, why did the Victorians and Edwardians, you know, want to display African objects in their museums? Um, and that led me really into an understanding of the intersections in between you know, white supremacy, you know, you know, anthropology as a racial science in this period of sort of you know, proto-fascism in the 1890s into 1910s. These are histories that we've addressed as anthropologists in sort of physical anthropology. We've dismantled the displays of skulls that you know that told the uh, the lie that there were different uh, types of human um but we left we ignored you know not the natural history but the cultural history uh you know that was there actually to tell the same lie the same lie of superiority of what augustus henry lane fox pitt rivers called the evolution of culture so it's been that that sense that you know here i am in a museum that you know, when I got here, you know, continued to think it was okay, you know, to tell the story or to nuance the story, to apologize, but kind of allow to persist that history of the evolution of culture and how in the present we aim, you know, now to dismantle as well as to repurpose actually what this anthropology museum is. Mm -hmm. So I'm what was the what was the process of bringing things together for the book Do you, you know you said you've been thinking about this book for a while and yeah. what what how were you bringing things for the book together when like what kind of gave you the kind of the opportunity then uh, to start thinking actually I I can now begin to write about this what was that journey like so the writing itself happened happened actually really quickly. You know, one of the things I learned from conversations with uh, uh, Nigerian colleagues in summer 2019 in in Nigeria on my trip as a part of the Benin uh, dialogue group. You know, I I got a sense of how much is altering in the you know you know Nigerian led side of this sort of this sort of conversation so um you know felt that there was a real urgency to uh to what has of course i mean let's you know remember that the you know the the first claims 
for restitution happened in the 1930s. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost 100 years old. Uh, and the first you know, returns, you know, to, you know, to Nigeria after, after, after the Benin, you know, attack of 1897 happened, you know, by, actually facilitated by the British Museum in, you know, 1938. Uh, with the you know, you know, with the, uh, the return of the coral crowns and a, uh, and a coral work gown, um, you, know, you know, to the king, to the Oba of, of Benin. So even though it's a long-standing, you know, argument, it's a long-standing um, a demand. Um, it seemed to me that there was a real urgency in. The, in this moment, there is there's an alignment of all of all of the important you know agencies you know locally you know and so from the national you know, you know, and the federal uh, governments um, to the uh, the royal court and you know the wider community. Um, but it's also a wider urgency for Africa, uh, you know, at a continental level. So restitution is entering a new phase in a very, very exciting way, I think, at the moment in, in terms of the interest. There's a whole host of uh, uh, nation states are, are you know, having in this. Um, and there's a joining up of agendas which move actually beyond the nation state to, uh, to a regional level. But are also operating at a at a subnational level with, you know, non-state actors. So, you know, here in Oxford, you know, as a non-state actor at the European side, and there and there are, you know, many of them. You know, there are many of us who are at the moment holding African objects, but we're not, you know, the British Museum or the VNA. We're not the British government. We are a different source of entity. Um, it seemed to me that we that I had to write from that perspective. So, so absolutely, the book is written from the perspective of the Pitt Rivers, uh, but is is inspired really by that, you know, that African moment which which is happening, and, and aiming really to listen to and to amplify African voices. It is something very very important, and it's actually something that I I was reflecting on after having a conversation uh, with a Nigerian archaeologist as to. How often, you know, I mean, the thing I know about is, you know, archaeology podcasts. And I, I know that archaeology podcasts are very white, very European or US. And I think there's a whole host of voices that we're missing out uh, by not engaging and not listening. And I think it's 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 going to be part of that kind of building you know it's i want to emphasize it's not just about um these situations with what you're doing with the museums but it actually extends to all of archaeology and anthropology uh the kind of discussions and dialogues and frankly actions that we, we need to have i i do want to kind of contrast that kind of um conversation uh with the reception mm. to your book at home and I kind of want to title this kind of like I want to get in the space of like the the reaction to restitution. I think it'd be a good idea here to kind of talk about maybe the difference between things like repatriation, restitution, and like this whole kind of like um, adjustment um, in terms of hmm. like I, I will, you're using the word restitution. Um, which kind of indicates yeah. not just, let's say, not just repatriating the items, but rather there's something more attached to that as well. What do you think in this kind of discussion? What are these? What are the meanings of these different words? Sure. Um, so I think it's important. I think you know the language is absolutely crucial here. Uh, I think you know sending back is not what we're talking about. We're talking about giving back. Um, and I think repatriation as a term sort of builds into it a sense of the nation state, which maybe restitution doesn't or returns doesn't. You know, I've learned in the media, you know, conversations I've had in recent 
you know, months and sort of years as, you know, in terms of being involved in this sort of conversation and making this conversation a public conversation, which is such an important, you know, part of what this book, you know, does. I've tried, who knows if I've uh, succeeded, but I've tried to write you know, the most accessible version of this book in terms of it being read by, you know, you know, a non-archaeologist, a non-specialist. I've, I've attempted to avoid too much jargon. And, I mean, when there is any jargon, I've attempted to, you know, to say sort of why it, you know, why it matters. But, um, <clears throat> you know, that, that, you know, that sense of a wider, you know, public conversation is you know absolutely central yeah so i i know that a lot of people within the archaeology community probably see you know that book <laughs> like a lot of i would say i'll, I'll be up frank uh, archaeology twitter probably mostly agrees um however you did kind of um you, you managed to get some of the the right the right criticism you managed to get you managed mm. to annoy the right people uh i heard about you got into a wee bit tiff with the times or something like that what, what happened there so with the times yeah i mean you know it's been wonderful to see you know i like to see this you know this sort of movement at its sort of european end as uh, as akin to the anti-apartheid movement in that you know, this is absolutely, this is an African-led movement, um, but some of us on the left have been foregrounding those issues for some time. But what happens with the anti-apartheid movement is as the knowledge of, you know, the facts actually, you know, began to be understood, this moved far beyond, you know, traditional political divides. This was about you know, doing the right thing. This was about a, you know, a new sort of layer in interactions and you know, relationships in between you know, Europe and 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 Africa. You know, as a continent, in that case, uh, South Africa, and um, you know, as a you know, as a nation. Um, so, what does that mean? You know, now, I mean, Ashila Mbembe has talked immensely, inspiringly about how, you know, a, a generation on from the end of apartheid, there's a new challenge he talks about in his, uh, you know, the famous lecture he gave about the Roads Must Fall movement in uh, uh, Cape Town. He talked about that notion of, well, he, he called it a negative moment, and there's a chapter in the book that talks about this. Um, you know, and... and, and and he said the negative moment is one in which um, old, you know, old antagonisms uh, remain un unresolved while new ones emerge. And, you know, that I think is a part of how we might see, you know, not only the calls for the falling of statues, but also not only the fall is a movement, but the restitution movement you know the falling or the or the dismantling of you know you know these 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 objects in museums so with the times and with others mm -hmm. you know of course we've seen you know i've seen um you know i've actually been been amazingly in inspired by the fact that the telegraph has <laughs> You know, allowed me to write. You know, you know, actually, you know, yeah. Now two op eds is a, in mm -hmm. in as many weeks. Um, we've had obviously, you know, support from the left in the usual ways, but also increasingly a consensus, and you know, among uh, museum uh, directors and others. With the Times, I think what we see, uh, and that very odd review, that very uneven and rather, you know, rather, rather, rather chaotic review that we saw from the chief uh, culture editor of the Times, I think there we see, you know, and this may be an editorial line of the Times. I I don't know, but but I certainly know that is an editorial line in other you know, on other themes for the times, the idea of, you know, wishing to, to sort of, you know, display or to represent, you know, any conversation about how a museum or any other, you know, cultural organisation might evolve itself as a kind of cultural mm -hmm. war. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, this was the culture war framing that was being applied. And of course, importantly, what we, what, you know, what we have to say, you know, is that the culture war is a framing of the right. You know, the idea of, you know, the, uh, the declaration of a culture war is something which is being invented in certain, actually quite, a, you know, hard right circles often as a way to push back against the progress that have been that has been made by the uh, the black lives matter mm-hmm. movement you know not only this year i mean most visibly in the year t- uh, um, in the year 2020 mm-hmm. but increasing but of course over over the past 5 years since mm-hmm. charlottesville uh, over uh, over really uh, a decade um, i do yeah. i do want to apologize i think they mistook me for you because i, I read this really interesting part <laughs> that were like um oh, what do you want to do a- empty the museum send it all back and i'm like no yes yes i actually do yeah give it all back yeah i want every single museum empty absolutely empty and you see the thing is the thing is i i, I like joking about that but i i think I think, and this is maybe where I'm inserting a bit of my kind of thoughts on restitution repatriation in, and you can tell me that I'm absolutely off the market with this or not. You know, I've always tried to kind of push the idea that like these calls for repatriation Mm. restitution uh, actually don't really have anything to do with the items being like physically moving. You know, it's not really the physical thing. It's almost like... It's rather giving the the power and the control over what happens to those items um, that, that that's needs to change. Uh, at the moment, and you can obviously correct me, I feel like museums are judge, jury, and executioner in terms of deciding on what can re- be restituted, what can be repatriated, and there doesn't seem to be an external body that really says, actually, you know what, museum, you're incorrect. You, you don't get to keep these. Museums seem to be holding all the cards. And it's almost like, well, hey, how can we frame this as uh, as something that makes us look good, rather than framing as, well, we have to do this, you know? And I, uh, it does sound really antagonistic, but I almost feel like the way museums are set up, you have to almost be antagonistic with them. So what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I think importantly, we need to say that, you know, restitution is already a normal part of the job of you know, museum curation. So, you know, there was a time where the return of Holocaust spoil was, you know, contentious. And in the 80s and 90s, you know, many of the arguments that we now hear uh, deployed in the context of African uh, cultural restitution were being made about objects that, that were taken in between the, uh, 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 1933 and 1945. Um, but, of course, since the Washington Principle of uh, 1998, that moved, absolutely crucially, moved the onus of the responsibility for understanding what was looted from the claimant to the institution. So if you're an art museum that has Holocaust loot, you need to know what you've got. You need to research who might be the you know, the rightful owner. And, you know, some people said, but, you know, what if these people, once these things are returned, you know, what if these objects are not on display to the public anymore? You know, what if they're sold? Who knows what happened? What if they're shut away in a private residence and no one can see it? And, you know, to which, of course, the answer was, it's their object. It's their artwork. They can do what they want with it, you know. Um, The same for human remains. You know, there was a time at which it was argued that the return of human uh, uh, remains when they were... When they were when when uh, you know, when they were identified and claimed by you know a descendant a, a descendant community, that well we'd never know how could we be sure we you know where does this end all these arguments were put but of course that's now normal a normal part of our operation. So the third leg of the restitution stool, I mean, all of these histories are completely different. I mean, the history of African restitution or African dispossession 
is, of course, incredibly different to what happened in the Holocaust. But that doesn't mean that in the technical way in which you think about how, as an institution, you give things back, you know, you know, when they're asked for, we have these other precedents. We have, you know, knowledge and institutional expertise about how, you know, you know, you can make procedures work. So, yeah, you know, I think it is right that the museums, that the process remains, you know, as a part of the curatorial, you know, role, because it, you know, it's important not to give things back to the wrong people. Mm-hmm. It's important to not just randomly FedEx everything to some somewhere else, so it's someone else's problem. I mean, that that seems mm-hmm. obviously. I mean, no one is saying mm-hmm. that. Um, but this is, I guess, there are two sides, you know, to it for me in terms of African cultural restitution. I mean, one is to share the knowledge of what we've got so that the claims can be mm-hmm. made, you know, uh, yeah, because we say, actually, yeah, we have this royal throne from Uganda. We have this object that was this a fossil that was taken from East Africa under these sort of conditions that we're, that we're, that, that we're honest, because under 1% of the objects that were taken from Africa that are in our UK museums, you know, are, are actually on display. You know, more than 99% of them are hidden away in boxes, in some cases in a box that hasn't been opened for 100 years. I mean, that's how bad it is. Um, so we have to share the knowledge. But then, you know, the second part of that is that you share the knowledge, but then, but then, but then actually, importantly, that you listen to the mm-hmm. claims in an open-minded way and that you return things. And maybe... You know, let's not overfocus on the Benin bronzes because it's, it, 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 you know, it's also important, maybe, you know, to lower the standards that we have of evidence and of, you know, knowledge, and to say, well, actually, in some cases, if there's a whole load of Egyptian archaeology, let's say that Egypt wants back, you know, why not? I mean, what's it doing in Britain? Why can't the archaeological work, understanding these historic objects, be be undertaken in Egypt rather than in Europe. Yeah. Of course. We're going to have a quick break and then we're going to be talking a bit more about museums and restitution. And we're back. I'm. This is Modern Myth. I'm Tristan. We're talking about museums, restitution. What is and isn't done and do you know what i think this is one of the things that the statistic that like i remember reading and it blew my mind was um that a museum only ever has a fractional percentage of its stores um out there on display and i think people don't really understand the um the size of like museum collections you were saying it was something like 99 percent of the african items that have been looted are probably in the museum stores and what do you like what do you think obviously some of these items have not even been properly recorded as you said yourself the some of the boxes haven't been open for 100 years the this is going to be a long-term project it's going to be a big project how do we even how do we even begin that kind of project because it almost seems like it's it's too big sure well i mean let's initially say that it costs money you know to keep these objects in the stores so you know you know every year that goes by when uh, regional museums our national museums fail even to put on the database, fail to catalogue, you know, what they have, um, you know, there are costs involved. And there are costs, of course, you know, to the African communities who have been sort of dispossessed. But, you know, the, you know, the universalist sort of narrative, the, you know, the argument that's put that these things are safer in the West, they're, they're safer in America or in Europe, fails to acknowledge not only that absolutely central argument from the Sar Savoir report from uh, uh, two years ago now that says, 
that you know 95% of of Africa's heritage is outside the continent. But that observation that you know, while that's the case, that you know, exactly as you say, that's under one percent of you know what's held here in the UK is actually on dis- on display of the nine hundred. Uh, the estimated 900 objects that were looted from the, from uh, Benin City in 1897, which were in the British Museum, circa 100 are on display. We don't even have firm numbers, you know, because even the BM hasn't invested in African in understanding, you know, what's in the African uh, African collections. You know, there are many regional museums in the UK that don't have a world culture specialist or, or a curator. They certainly don't have an Africanist, you know, but they have absolutely world important, you know, internationally important, um, you know, you know, African, African collections, whether this is, you know, Liverpool or Manchester or you know, Bristol or Birmingham, you know, mm-hmm. Edinburgh, and so forth. But even, you know, Derby, you know, Belfast, you know, these are, these are, it's incredible. Once you look at the map of world culture museums, these objects washed up in every city in this nation, you know, you know, in the UK, you're never more than 150 miles away from a looted African object. But we don't know that we so there's a there's a really important you know, new reckoning happening across Europe with you know, the legacies of empire and the histories of empire in the later 19th century. And, you know, a central part of that reckoning and central sites for that reckoning to happen in are are these, you know, really, really undiscovered archaeological stores. The, you know, the last, the, uh, the last uh, great archaeological sites you know, one might argue, are our museums, which are filled mm-hmm. with these layers of loss and of violence and of imperial, you know, loot. It's about time that we understood what's in them. And I think this is this is the 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 good message out of all of this. It's it's about getting things moving, uh, about making positive changes that actually help in the long run not just you know like we're you know as you said yourself like holding these items costs money the status quo costs and uh, you know not to make the argument about money but obviously museums are finding it incredibly difficult at the moment but i i think that was even happening before the pandemic um i i think yeah. i think that this is when i would kind of step in and say you know i think the the the, the formation of the museum as this kind of uh, cultural hold all um is is you know perhaps part of the of the issue that you know these items are being taken they're almost for want of a better word, almost hoarded in the UK, uh, simply by the fact that the virtue that they're they're not really uh, nobody's been able to do anything with them. Um, I, I would mm. like to pick up on some of the the arguments that are made because I come across the attitude quite a lot uh, against the idea of restitution and. I can tell you it comes from a certain place and a certain place that is most likely to vote one political party in the UK over another for some reason, or, you know, had had a very good childhood, went to a fancy school, etc., etc. And I feel as if these arguments are always made from a place of unintentional, unintentional kind of like almost like racism in the sense that like Britain is seen as the, the place where things can be understood where, well, if it's in a British museum, then it can be understood for the world over and everyone can fly to Britain and understand these things in the best view and all this. And no, we wouldn't want to give them back. They'd be all damaged. What, what argument annoys you the most? Because those are my two. Those are my two. I absolutely despise the universal. Oh, look how many people uh, come to the British Museum every year. Or the oh, but I mean, look at ISIS. I'm like, I'm sorry, but uh, have you, like, yeah. uh, just it, no, it annoys me to no end. So, what are your? What's the most annoying um, 
ones there for you? Yeah, well, I mean, how long have you got? We need a whole separate you know, podcast for that. But for me to give you the full answer, so let me give give you the expurgated version. Um, you know, I, I, you know, and uh, and I mean, let me just you know, preface that by saying that the universalist angle, the idea of the universal museum, you know, the book says was a very, you know, a very, yeah, very much an invention of you know 2002 it's not this great you know, it doesn't have this this sort of long history i mean our you know the idea that that we are in the west you know looking after universal heritage is an incredibly recent idea it comes out of the you know, the blairite you know notion of a multiculturalism as a melting pot that you're going to see museums as healing rifts in the present between you know, you know different cultures while ignoring the past it, it as the book argues it also sort of came out of uh, you know, an attempt the uh, the last time that we were in a you know a sort of crisis for destination tourism you know to say here's a reason to get on an airplane you know to new york or london um you know to see some you know yeah come and see some culture so it, there were you know culture you know was instrumentalized under the sort of history of the world in in a hundred objects sort of ideology of the universal museum uh it was instrumentalized both for a certain model of multiculturalism that i don't think you know many would hold on to today but also actually to support the oil industry and to support the airlines you know in a way that i think also is equally unsustainable but the arguments that annoy me most probably now are the disingenuous ones you know you know africa cannot look after its own artifacts i mean that is just pure you know racism when you read it i mean you know today we heard in the news that you know a darwin a notebook has been lost from cambridge you know library and i have no desire to criticize cambridge university oh i i will i will lot. honestly they can't even look yeah, after their yeah, own okay. stuff I, I, this is why this is why africa should get darwin's books honestly well that's right but, that's, but this is but the reality of you know working in archives and museums is that things do you know yeah. go missing at times and the processes break down but the idea what's fascinating is that a tiny number of examples of you know african museums you know you know not you know, not performing to the supposed high standards of the western museums completely misses the reality that our western <laughs> institutions are constantly you know not fessing up to or almost not not you know we don't notice the fact that objects get nicked from museums on a fairly on a periodic basis here in Britain, you've only got to Google, you know, actually what you know, you know ivory being stolen mm -hmm. from some museums. Other, I mean, you know, we could tell that story for ourselves. So that's the one that annoys me most is that somehow, and also frankly, I mean, when we you know, return the you know, human remains, we 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 take no interest in what happens. Uh, to it next mm -hmm. we, we, we yeah normally yeah we don't say you've got to display it in a museum this skull mm -hmm. of your ancestor that was taken as part of race science of course normally these objects are buried and are destroyed so why on earth would we want to take an interest in what happens uh, uh, to an object next this is this is really um you know not only are we not looking after them here but the the sheer arrogance of saying that they can't be looked after in Africa is just, that's the thing that gets, yeah, that is the thing that really gets me. <laughs> totally, totally. And just uh, finally, I actually wanted to kind of talk about um, a project that you've been working on called Museums Unlocked uh, on, on Twitter. So um, yeah, sure. can you, like, I, I must say that obviously I am, um, very big on public engagement with uh, archaeology. It's kind of something I think about every day. And obviously, I'm on Twitter spouting my nonsense. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, Museums Unlocked, tell me a little bit more about this. 
So it links really to, to, to the conversation we were just having because, you know, Museums Unlocked came out in the first sort of days of lockdown, of the first lockdown here in the UK as something I've been thinking about for a long time, which is how we, how we co-curate, how the role of the curator is not about, you know, the single lone voice, the lone scholar, you know, you know Neil McGregor, who has a story to tell you, you know, a hundred times over where the object just illustrates it and his is the only voice. He probably didn't even need the object to tell the story. He could have just sort of told it anyway, you know, um, yeah, but it makes it look pretty. That That's the opposite of where I think we are now in a new paradigm, if I can use that word, of, of curation, which is not about um, you know, yourself as the curator, but is about, you know, co-curation. It's a more sort of be a generous moment for museums. It's about humans rather than things. And so when the Museums Unlocked thing happened, which was where I said, let's just, okay, the museums are shut. You know, why don't we just try to visit them, you know, from from the images we have of them on our cell phones, in our, you know, online uh, on our laptops, on our clouds. Let's share some images, but let's also just share some knowledge of you know you, you know the museums, the institutions we love. And then over time, that turned into into different themes. But absolutely crucially, each of those days is about a you know not a um, you know not a, a desire you know to you know, to just, you know, ask people to contribute for some central purpose, you know, to crowdsource. This is about community building. This is about the interaction of a group of people who have incredible expertise. A lot of them are on furlough. Some are artists. Some are, you know, museum people. Some some are members of the, you know, members of the public that just have incredible you know, knowledge and passion about the subjects that they're interested in. And there's a pace sort of to it as well. So there's a generosity to it about sharing. There's a temporality to it because it's about you know remembering and sharing the places that you visited. But it's also about looking forward. You know, you know, to the. Uh, the um, you know the museums and the sites and landscapes you know that we love that we that we may have you know, learned about from others or you know you know that we know ourselves that that we want to visit after all of this horrible time is over so um you know fundamentally you know museums unlocked came out of very much the same impulse as you know the british museums it's about a human centered approach to museums it's about you know looking outwards from our institutions and not inwards. It's a reaction to the fact that the digital offer of our museums is so fundamentally, you know, universally naff, and that the way to solve that is by letting go. We don't have to own the narrative anymore ourselves as our institutions. We can allow other voices you know to take over and that's the joy of it i mean i you know come up with a with a theme or others you know suggest the themes and you know then what happens is people interpret that in all sorts of ways uh and they read it and it turns into something else i also an important part of that process is i archive it so i've been using the the twitter uh moments um the function to archive I, I don't really really know why i'm archiving them but they are turning into quite interesting archives so archiving it seemed important from the start where hope hoping now to go into a new phase into december 2020 where we're just going to trial you know this is a research sort of tool so i'm i'm talking to doctoral students at leicester university here in Oxford, I'm talking to some other organisations who may want to use, you know, the museum's unlocked approach to understand their own subject a bit better. So they'll set the agenda, they'll kind of host that day, you know, they'll offer their own content and share their own content, but also and so have an opportunity to have things you know, disseminated that way. 
but also learn from others. So yeah, it's a new sort of sharing. You know, it isn't, and I I hope, and you know, I and I think actually, you know, that really, yeah, museums unlocked is the sort of you know grassroots approach to understanding heritage. You know, that we need in a in a whole host of other sort of context. And I think restitution, how do we join the dots in between the museums and lock project and restitution? One day we will, I have no doubt. Excellent, excellent. So if people want to grab a copy of the book, um, how can they do that? So the best way is to go onto plutobooks.com uh, and to buy from the, uh, the publisher direct. If they do so before... December 9th, they will get half price off. So you get in, in the UK, the British Museums is uh, £10 in hardcover with a free ebook. Uh, yeah, that's their holiday offer. Uh, but in general, I think, you know, if you don't buy it from the publisher, ensure that you uh, support your local bookshop, uh, order it there, while also using Amazon's you know, review and rate function, so we can counteract some of some of you know some of the narratives that we've already heard are out there mm-hmm. from some of our national yeah, yeah, national papers. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And if people want to follow your work, uh, like Museums Unlocked, uh, where's the best way to kind of follow that? So you can follow me at uh, which is at Prof Dan Hicks. Uh, you can also follow at Museums Unlocked, uh, or just Google me. I mean, I'm I'm fairly I'm fairly you know Googleable. Uh, yeah, just yeah, search for Dan Hicks. There there was a you know, you, get, you, know, you might get the, uh, the, uh, the psychedelic you know rocker <laughs> from you know San Francisco from the sixties and seventies, but uh-huh. at the time, I'm managing to get a mm-hmm. bit of an edge on 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 him. So uh, yeah, you know you'll uh, a simple yeah. Google uh, you know, Google search for Dan Hicks, and of should, course, yeah, should do uh, it. Yeah, uh, well, links will definitely be in the show notes below as well. Well, thank you very much for spending an evening talking to me and sharing all this wonderful information and uh, all the best to you and your book. Okay, thanks so much. It's been great. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.